Hello, welcome to Creating Portland. I'm your host, Pearson Coons, and on this podcast, I'll be interviewing progressive creators who are using their art to shape the culture of our city and beyond. I hope you enjoy this episode of Creating Portland. Everybody, welcome to Creating Portland, the podcast where we interview progressive artists and talk to them about how they are shaping the culture of Portland and beyond through their art. We are here today with the incredible Don Jones Redstone. First of all, what a celebrity name, but let's get into it. Um, Don is an award-winning filmmaker from uh, Portland since 1996. And she's been making all kinds of really cool art, putting people of color at the front, putting queer stories at the front. And I'm so excited to talk to her about all of that. So welcome, Dawn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be in your company today and to finally get this up and running. Yes, (laughs) we had some technical difficulties on the way, but we are here and it is going to sound gorgeous for the listeners. So the question I ask all of my guests is pretty vague, but you can take it as vague or specific as you would like. And the question is, how are you creating Portland? Through your work, through yourself, just how are you creating our city? Yeah, I think my answer is is through both of those things. So one, as a filmmaker, I am contributing to the art community um, in terms of the films I make and what people are watching and talking about, hopefully, and and just like accessing and adding all of that to our, you know, our local collection and um, community together. And then myself, like as someone who is, you know, entrenched with other artists, um, I get to, you know, collaborate and um, choose who I hire, choose who I work with, um, help other people, um, you know, reach out to other people for help. It's, um, you know, all of those things are ways that I am helping to create Portland. And I mean, and some of it's very intentional in the sense that I'm aware that there's a community here that um, doesn't always embrace or um, I'm, I'm aware that there's a community here that doesn't embrace uh, the BIPOC community in particular, when we're talking about media makers, uh, as much mm-hmm. as it should. And so one of the things that I try to do in my work is to change that by supporting and connecting with other BIPOC and LGBTQ artists here in town. Oh, love that. Well, let's get into your work then. Can you tell us a little bit more about the films you've made? And just maybe we'll start sort of just talking about the artsy side of it, and then we'll get into that hiring and collaborative, because I think that's such an awesome element of your work too. But like, what stories are you telling through your films? And how do you pick them? So I've been making things for a long time, but it wasn't until 2015 that um, I decided to kind of go big. And uh, I partnered with a former coworker and friend of mine, Dr. Roberta Hunt, um, to make a short film called Sista and the Brotherhood. And Mm. what was different about this project is that we wanted to try to raise some money and write a grant and really draw people in to get support for it. And that was the first time that I'd done something of that scale where it was, Mm. you know, it wasn't just like get some friends together for a weekend, but no, let's like up our game and, you know, spend more time on the script and and really build like a team of folks um, to have something with, you know, a little bit nicer production values. And 
Um, and we did that with this story that was inspired by my friend's thesis um, called My Walk Has Never Been Average about the experience of black mm. tradeswomen. And then also partly uh, in reference to my own experience as a, an apprentice carpenter. And, you know, this, this script um, just became a film after about you know, six months of work. And then it was on the film festival circuit and we started winning awards and everything just took off from there. It was the first time that I'd made something where I felt like I was really connecting with an audience in a new way. And that, that mm. feeling of, you know, having something go from being a vision in your head to being up on a big screen across the country, around the world, like that, that is such a, a powerful feeling. And um, it just makes you want to do more. It just makes you want to like figure out like, how can I get there again? How can I create something that really has an impact impact on how people think and feel about a subject or an idea. Mm. And what is that? This is something that I've sort of started experiencing recently too with my films is this audience reaction, which is so fascinating. And I think a lot of the average viewer doesn't see the whole picture of how everyone's reacting to the piece, but what, what does that look like for you? How are people reacting to you? And what are sort of the responses people are giving you to your work? Yeah. Well, I mean, I will. Okay, for I should. I want to put a caveat on that in the sense that. Okay. Well, I don't think that it can be exclusively about the audience. I think you have mm. to pay attention to: um, Are you being true to yourself, and are you expressing yourself? And that that piece is is ultra important um, because you know sometimes the audience doesn't respond in the way that you want them to, and that's okay too. It's just like figuring out your audiences mm -hmm. and finding those people. But. Um, for me, I mean, that film in particular, that first short, Sister and the Brotherhood, was very personal to me because I uh, had co-written it with my friend Shirsten Johnson, but I had written in people that were based, characters that were based on people that I knew. And wow. so um, several of the things that happened in the film happened to me. Uh, and then it was, you know, we tied it into my friend's thesis and some of these bigger themes about, like, resistance and uh, microaggressions, et cetera. But um, that feeling of like going on the road, like being in New York City and having a special screening with a group of tradeswomen. You know, we mm -hmm. had, we screened at a festival, but then we also had a, a small screening with a, um, you know, the plumbers union, <laughs> a bunch of women came and have people in the room, you know, crying or saying, mm -hmm. I've had all of those things happen to me. I've never seen our story told, um, you know, thank you. Like that is, that's so powerful. Like that's the thing that you, you live for, but, um, it's, you know, it's that, it's knowing that the film is still going now. We're about to have um, a, a, a formal release through Collective Eye. It's the first time they've had okay. a narrative short film and we're gonna be um, putting that out in the world in this different way. We've been kind of self-distributing through our website, but we just connected with Collective Eye and they were like, yeah, we wanna make this available to universities around the country and be on catalogs. <clears throat> and um, it's just a, a different way to, tell this unique story because it's something that, um, you know, there's the politics of what it means to have equity within the construction industry, but it's also something, a message that resonates right now in particular. We're, we're seeing stories. Yeah. About, yeah. I was just going to ask, how does it feel different now with the current, this current thrust of the Black Lives Matter movement? Is this, is this film, as the kids say, hitting different, <laughs> like, with these audiences now? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. Like one of our, um, we won Best Short at Workers Unite Film Festival in 2016 and in New York. And 
They just reached out to us and asked to screen it again, and we made it available for free for 12 hours only because mm. normally we sell it. And, it, yeah, there was a, a huge, like, I had 123 people or something share it from my Facebook page. Like, people Whoa. were interested in watching it and, and seeing it. But, you know, there's also this part of me that, <laughs> I don't know, it's a little annoying when people are so late to the game just because we've mm -hmm. been talking about this stuff for a long time. And there's people that are just now, like, latching onto it. And, and I'm glad. I, you know, I don't want to take away from that. Like, I'm glad that hearts and minds are opening in this way. But... Um, I guess there's this part of me that's just like, yeah, yeah, we've been, <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> still existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is sort of an interesting phenomenon of the moment. And then, so that is a like a politically charged movie. And then we have you're wearing your T-shirt right now for uh, we have <laughs> our ways. We have our ways, which is actually where I found out about you was at the Portland Film Festival when it screened there. And so tell us about We Have Our Ways, which is maybe even more sort of tense in the <laughs> political climate. Yes. Um, so this one, uh, so I continued my partnership with my friend Shirsten Johnson, um, and she wrote this piece, and um, I directed it, and we got a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and it's a, a story that takes place in a, a near dystopic future, and it's about these women of color who are trying to access an underground abortion clinic. Um, and one of them in particular who is kind of having a reckoning because her, her day job is basically rejecting people's health insurance claims. And it begins to wear on her and this world mm. and now her cousin needs help accessing this clinic. And she just uh, begins to find her own ways of seeking resistance and you know, possibly because She's just hitting rock bottom with it. Like things keep getting worse and worse for her. And mm. so the film culminates around this moment where she realizes that she has to do something bigger. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> and that feels especially relevant now too, even. And I know there's like protest elements and resistance elements to that film. Well, yeah. I mean, I think what I, what I loved about the story was that it, it, I think that what it's ultimately about is like, figuring out what is the power that you have in your own life and how can you use that for good? Mm. Um, you know, for her, it's, she has, she gets to make these decisions on a daily basis about whether or not someone can have access to healthcare. And she starts finding little things that she can do to help people. But then in this broader story, she, she's also just um, kind of like ready to sign up for the resistance by the end of the film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah which is how a lot of us are feeling right now in this moment. Like, <laughs> sign me up, let's go. Um, awesome. And then most recently, we won awards together actually for um, the Oregon Independent Film Festival, but I'm sure it's done very well at other film festivals as well. But your film Magnificent, tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so Ma Magnificent w was a bit of a, you know, a, a turn for me in the sense that I wanted to try telling a, a different kind of story, also a personal story similar to Sister in the Brotherhood, but um, it's a queer story too. It's about two women who go on a first date in the gorge and <clears throat> they there's a misunderstanding that then leads to some tension and one of them gets lost and I don't want to ruin the story, but um, <laughs> it, it's kind of about this experience of like one you know, you're try trying to connect with someone and the ways that we mm. like judge each other and keep ourselves apart. And uh, this, this woman has a reckoning in that she just realizes that 
you know, maybe she should be viewing things differently. And um, at mm. the same time that she's like wandering lost in the forest and a series of things happen to her that lead her to that. And then it has this surprise Pacific Northwest ending that I don't mind saying here that they um, stumble upon the salmon run and see mm. this like what I consider to be this like miracle of nature where you see, you know, the salmon swimming upstream to spawn and die. And it's just, you know, uh, it's a simple metaphor for life, but something that mm -hmm. if you see it in nature can be, you know, a transformative moment. As it was for me anyway, the first time I saw that. Wow. Yeah, way cool. Loved that one. <laughs> okay, yes. So you're telling these super compelling stories, these beautiful art pieces. And if you've seen any of Don's films, you know how gorgeous they look too. And then tell us more about this intentional hiring and collaboration and inclusion of BIPOC artists. Because I think there's this, this fervor of this moment right now to hire more BIPOC people, which like you're saying is annoying that it's only happening now when you've been doing it for years, including all of these awesome collaborators that we already have here. So tell me more about that. Yeah, well, so part of it is that um, I, wor I worked at a nonprofit for uh, nine years that was focused on helping to prepare women for careers in construction. So I was the trainer and I was, I was surrounded by women all the time and in terms of who I was teaching and my coworkers and you know all of us trying to like, like break into this um, male dominated career. So, okay, so tell us more about your sort of intentional hiring and collaboration of BIPOC artists and people of different backgrounds and identities on your projects and then maybe how does that like influence the actual project itself is what i always find interesting that's a good question um well so i have a background in uh helping women get into the male-dominated career of construction it's what i i, uh, I taught a pre-apprenticeship class for a number of years as a former carpenter and I guess I, when I started to make films, I brought that knowledge with me about, um, mm. like when I think about, uh, you know, hiring someone on a crew, that represents a job for someone. It represents a way to earn a living and get by, support family. And when you look at who typically makes up crews in the film industry, similar to construction, it's mostly white men. And so, um, I feel a sense of responsibility to try to provide opportunities for people like me. And mm. I mean, there's, so there's, there's that piece that's like, let's, let's spread, you know, if I have some grant money, hey, who am I going to spread that around to? Um, but also, it's way more fun for me. Like, I love that experience of being on a set with people that look like me. Like, that's, um, that's, a, really, that's a really good feeling. And I think it's also particularly important when we talk about media making that we see broader representation both in front of and mm -hmm. behind the camera because you know people say that like cinema is a representation of our hopes and dreams as a society and if that's really what it means and i i do agree that that's what it means then we want to make sure that we see um all kinds of media makers that something that represents um you know who we actually are as a people what is the percentage mm -hmm. of the population that we should be seeing um, both in front of and behind the camera. You know, I think with like Netflix and you know, some of these newer initiatives, you are starting to see better representation in front of the camera. But when you look at what's happening behind it, it's the numbers are so terrible. I just read this morning about um, an article that New York Times did about the Criterion Channel, and they were talking about how mm. there's only two percent Latina directors or Latinx directors 
So both male and female um, within the Criterion the collection. collection. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, there's all these people that are kind of like gatekeepers and. I mean, I think it's just implicit bias. I don't think they set out to keep people out, but I think maybe they watched a film and they didn't connect to it, so they just assumed that that's not art or yeah. that's not worthy. And um, I'm just uh, interested in, one, people making spaces like that for myself and my art, but then mm. also I have some power and I can choose you know, who, who I can reach out to and, and help lift up and bring with me also. Wow. Oh, inspiring words. Um, Yes, thank you for putting that out there. I think that transitions really nicely into the next sort of big question of the podcast, which is how would you describe the Portland art scene or the Portland film scene in general? What are the things that you're liking about it? And then what are the things that we need to improve on or work on as a community? Yeah, um, let's see. Well, I mean, one of the biggest ways that I connect to the filmmaking community is through some of the organizations in town, um, whether that's uh, you know, Northwest Film Center, OMPA, um, Cooch Collective, Women in Film, Film Fatales, Open Signal. Um, those, I have some connection to almost all of those. And um, it's a way to, you know, find events and, uh, you know, potential crew members and learn about other people's projects and support those. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the things that I think works well is that we have these organizations that are helping to bring people together, and they're centered around very specific communities in some cases. Mm. And um, that's been really, really valuable to me. Because they also, you know, they have grants or they have other ways of, like, supporting our work um, besides just connecting us. Um, and I think one of the things that is not working well <laughs> is that <laughs> in order to earn a living as a media maker, the most lucrative work is on the commercial side. That's where mm -hmm. you can like, you know, do something and actually be able to pay the bills in a way that, you know, the indie films that I do, you know, I get grants and I raise money, but we're, you know, we're always short of money. And um, it's, it's not the same thing as being on a commercial project where, mm -hmm. you know, companies are investing, you know, large amounts of dollars to, to um, you know, get the look that they want. And when you look at that industry, when you look at the commercial side of things, whether that's literally like a Nike commercial or, you know, a TV show that's coming to town to shoot here, and you look at who's on set, it's, it's not, the representation is not good. It's, it's not enough. Mm. And, um, and so one of the things that I'm doing is actually through OMPA, um, Oregon, Oregon Media Producers Association. I just joined the diversity committee and like kind of at the start of COVID, several of us did. And... It's um, the diversity committee right now is mostly made up of BIPOC LGBTQ media makers. And nice. we are trying to figure out ways to address this. And so one of the things that I was interested in working on was the Oregon Film Incentive Program and like figuring out ways to um, build inclusion into that. I mean, luckily, mm. Tim Williams, who you know heads that, he's, he's on that himself already. And we're just kind of trying to find ways to you know help help him do his thing um but there's also you know there's people working on diversity and hiring there's people working on a, a some kind of certification program that would help companies um you know figure out how to improve their numbers um so i mean i think those are two those are probably the two biggest things of like what's working and what isn't the two things that come to mind um yeah yeah that's 
And it's really interesting that you bring up how tied it is to the money side. Like the money is the biggest problem. And then there's this diversity problem as well. And they're so intricately connected, right? Like these incentives don't require any level of diversity on the set or behind the scenes to get those incentives to film here. So I love that you're connecting those two in the policies it sounds like you're making, which is super cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, ultimately, Oregon Film Office will make that policy, hopefully, but it's just also a really hard time to, um, you know, tinker with a program like that, where um, just there's a lot of uh, people are looking for ways to save money right now, and the Oregon Film Office has been in danger. So um, it's a tough time. But to me, that's like a really easy way to have a, a larger impact. Um, you know, if somebody's coming into town with, you know, spending 500,000, a million, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. like, I want to see, I want to see that diversity on set. I want to see that money being spread throughout our community. Um, so yeah, that's something that I, you know, I'm not, I don't know what kind of success we'll have, but it's certainly been really cool to just like be with, you know, my fellow filmmakers and DPs and producers just like trying to, you know, see what we can to shake things up yes love that oh um and so then that sort of brings us into our last segment which is like what does the future of the portland art scene look like for you what are you seeing where do we need to head and then also like how are we getting there yeah it's funny because i think through this group being on the diversity committee with ompa um i feel like we're we're bonding and banding together in new mm. ways. And I really like that feeling because I think there's things that we can do when we work together. And, um, and right now it feels really important to try to attack some of these you know, industry specific problems because there's momentum. And there are people that are like, you know, starting to reflect. And you know, that article I mentioned about Criterion Collection, like mm -hmm. you know, the guy that runs it was just talking about, we need to do better and here, these are the things we're gonna do. And, and you know, yeah, set an example. That, you know, <laughs> make that change, and let's have other people get on board with that. So I, I want to see ultimately, you know, more filmmakers um, that look like me. I want to see more Black filmmakers. I want to see more trans filmmakers. I want to see um, just a, a you know much broader spectrum of voices, um, you know, telling telling these stories. And um, you know, we know that. Oops. <laughs> We know that, um, sorry, I'll give you a pl clean place to cut. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, we, we know that, um, you know, when we look at the, the national numbers, uh, people of color in particular, like we're going to be the majority by, I don't mm -hmm. know if it's like that number seems to change, but it's not too long now. And, you know, that means a drastic change is needed within um, the filmmaking industry in order to keep up with that and have like a, a true reflection of who we are. So there's that. Personally, I'm trying to make a feature film and I've yes, been working on that. Tell us about that. I, well, I'm shooting a proof of concept. Uh, it got, actually, I think when we were scheduling this, it was supposed to be last weekend, but it got pushed back because of COVID Oof. stuff. Um, yeah. So now we're shooting it September 5th, but um, I don't know how much of the story I want to say, but it's um it's a little it's kind of a return to the sister and the brotherhood genre in the sense mm. that it's um it's like this mix of 
you know, bits of realism, but there's also some magical realism in it too. And um, mm. I'm hoping to start raising money for it in January of next year. And I have to raise a lot of money. So <laughs> that's the part that's yeah. the most daunting about making a feature film. Because, you know, you want to you wanna do things where you feel like you're, you're raising your production levels, you're getting better, you're the, you know, everyone's um, getting better at what they do. And the ultimate, you know, look of and feel of the film is going to reflect that, but it takes a lot of money to do that. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's going to be intense and I'm getting ready for it. And uh, I mean, the good news is that what makes it easy to at least have the energy to try to raise the money is just that I'm really excited to be at this point in my career. And, um, and I know that I have people that will support me in doing this. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a huge endeavor that I'm, I'm ready for now. Yeah. Wow. Exciting stuff. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Don. It's been an absolute pleasure. So much exciting and inspirational insight for me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I kind of I want to hear what you're up to. But um, yeah, I'm... well, we'll chat. We'll chat off, off the pod <laughs> okay. about what's happening. And um, and where can people find you online, Don? Yes, I. Uh, you can visit my website at donjonesredstone.com. Um, Don Jones Redstone on Instagram. Uh, Donamo is my nickname. Like Don, like Love Dynamo. It. Donamo <laughs> um, on Twitter. Um, yeah, the folks can follow me and uh, definitely looking for you know, investors and yes. <laughs> supporters. And I'm also, I'm always up to talk with other folks that are coming up and, you know, wanting to figure out their path. Oh, well, thank you. That sounds fantastic. Well, make sure you are following Dawn on all that social media on those websites. And you can also follow us at Creating PDX on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creating Portland. Uh, we'll see y'all next time. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Creating Portland with me, Pearson Coons. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CreatingPDX or on our website, CreatingPDX.com. This podcast was brought to you by Wolf and Thunder Productions and Golden Pride Productions. See you next time. Bye!